0: Welcome back to The Potter's House, the podcast where we discuss how biblical topics, church life, and current events impact our everyday lives. My name is Marcus Ionescu, and I am your host, and today we re- we are joined again uh, by our guest from last week, uh, Mr. Tim Boychuk. Tim, how's it going today in Canada?
1: Uh, it's going, it's going. God's grace is amazing as always, and um, I can't say the same for the depravity of the Canadians, but... <laughs> 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 uh, you know how it is.
0: <laughs> so, as mentioned last week, um, just to kind of explain things, so Tim and I recorded this super in-depth John Calvinist-like recording um, that's lasted about three and a half hours long. And uh, last week, you guys heard part one. That was the introduction, uh, the history behind where how Calvinism came to be. And then uh, we kind of continued going forward. Um, and then we talked about basically the components of Tulip. Now, I, I kind of cut the episode short, as you guys have seen uh, after the introduction, so we can split it into two different parts. Uh, but um, something kind of went wrong with the last 50 minutes of that second part recording. And now we're going to re-record uh, the second part again, but it's going to be much more condensed. Now, um, obviously, I'm recording this but a few weeks before I release this, so I haven't decided whether or not I will release that extended cut. Uh, I might just release it as a another episode within the same week, in case you guys want to dive a little deeper, because Tim does a really good job of just really diving into Scripture and he explains it like 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 there's no tomorrow. So um, we have that available, but I just wanted to kind of put that out front up front there, because I know we kind of cut the last week's episode abruptly with my little interruption there. But this week we're gonna have a little like a condensed version, a condensed episode of the five components, the five main components of Calvinism, uh, TULIP as we know it as the acronym. So that's what, that's what we're going to have this week. Uh, but before we get into that, I do want to make a couple of announcements, just some standard housekeeping announcements. Um, first and foremost, you can follow us on our Instagram for any and all updates. Um, we have a brand new website. Uh, for those of you who have not seen it yet, it's uh, tagged in the Instagram bio, but you can also access it through um, www.thepottershouse.com. And through that website, you can have uh, you can find the links to the different streaming platforms, most notably Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And then you can also um, support the fundraising that that we're still having. Uh, I think we have a few shirts left, but you can you can buy a long sleeve uh through the website and then all proceeds will go to um the upcoming missions for, for T4T so for those of you who have been keeping up thus far. Uh again, Apple Podcast, those of you guys who use it, maybe you don't use it but you have it on your phone, please go to it. Uh tap the stars. As of as of today, the last time I checked, there's 93 five star ratings. Let's get it over hundred and let's keep going, guys. I, I, I want to see it to con- you know to continue to grow the algorithm that iTunes has, uh, improves the exposure of the show based on how many ratings it has. Uh, also written reviews. If you leave a written review, I will read that out loud as well. So, uh, that's that more information to come regarding updates with the website, uh, in the next, uh, few weeks. So Tim, let's get back to, let's get back to business, man. We, we, we recorded a very extensive episode. I learned a lot. Definitely. And uh, now we're going to kind of chop it up into smaller bites for for maybe the listeners out there who aren't as familiar with Calvinism. Now, mm-hmm. I, I do understand that there are uh, a few um, Reformed listeners out there who are well-informed and uh, well-aware of, of all these things that we're going to talk about. So um, if if I do end up releasing the Extended Cut, go check that out. Uh, but for those of you who have just heard as the name Calvinism and has... Maybe it has a negative connotation whenever you hear it. Um, what we're going to talk about is today is basically explaining each component of 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 this, um, I guess, theology if if we can if we can call it that. Explaining each component and then um, understanding what it truly means. So Tim, let's 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 start things off uh, just right off the bat. So the T, right? T stands for um, total depravity. Yeah. Total depravity, and I know you also, there's another thing it stands for, it's total inability. So um, I don't know where you want to start things off, but maybe can we start things off, like defining the difference between total depravity and total inability?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So total depravity is something, surprise, surprise, I could actually agree with. Um, Pretty much, it's the doctrine that is very well um, taught And I I would point your listeners to Romans 3 as a a book that would be very, or as a chapter that would be very useful for them to read on it, where the Apostle Paul quotes from various scriptures throughout the Old Testament, demonstrating how it's not just the Jews that are um, depraved or accused of their sin because they knew the law, but also even the Gentiles because the law is written in their heart as it is described in Romans 2, and their conscience uh, convicts them. And then he says that it's, you know, everyone... It it was God's plan that everyone should be found or seen as um, being guilty of sin, Um, not because he made them guilty, but because they made themselves guilty. They sinned. No one, as Romans 3 says, and as Paul quotes from other scriptures, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, you know, that their thought is continuously on sin, that their mind is continuously thinking of, of wickedness. Um, and Romans 1 even describes as some people going up to the point where they try to suppress the knowledge of God through their iniquity. Now, I could agree that all people have sinned. I could agree that you know all people, when they're born, and if you guys listen to the previous episode, when they're born into a world of darkness, and all they've known is darkness, they're going to act as if they're in the dark. They're going to do things in the darkness. They're going to do the things that surround them, and that all they have known is that. It's impossible for them not to. It's like you know, being born and falling straight into a dirty puddle. That, dirty, that dirt is going to seep into every single crevice of your body. It's going to seep into your mouth, your nose, everything. And you're going to be full of this dirt. And your nature is, is going to become sinful. Um, I could even agree, um, and not that I necessarily have to acquiesce to it, but I could even agree that humanity has a sinful nature. It is, is, it is very, very sinful. Um, Specifically, and this is a bit off topic, but specifically because we're separated from the holiness of God, we're separated from the goodness of God. Um, now, I agree that we're sinful. I agree that we're depraved. Where I disagree is with the difference, like you mentioned, Marcus, is uh, total inability. Um, so the difference of total inability, total depravity, total inability takes a step further, um, where it says that uh, uh, humanity or everyone is born unable to respond willingly to God's revealed truths so if you're born into this darkness um, uh, and God gives you some revelation he sends you beacons of light here and there in that darkness he sends you messages through the gospel he sends light to revealed nature all throughout uh, all throughout the, uh, the world his uh, nature revealing his invisible attributes um, total inability teaches that you can't respond to that. You can't see that. You, e- even if you did see that, you can't respond to it. You can't agree to it. You can't accept it. It's as if, uh, it's as if there's some innate thing that's stopping you and actually we'll uh, find out later on that Calvinists believe that it is actually God who um, decreed for this to be this way, um, that you would be unable to uh, respond to this call of the light or the re- revelation of light or the call of the gospel. Does that
0: kind of makes sense. <laughs> no, it does. Yeah, because, um, like you said, uh, people from different perspectives—Calvinists uh, or not, Reformed or not—a uh, lot of people, I mean, a lot of Bible reading Christians can agree that we are totally depraved. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I think it's h- very difficult to argue otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but making that distinction between depravity and inability, um, I guess, is the fine line between whether or not you follow the, this wave of reform theology of, 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 you know, certain pillars of Calvinism and then the other side. And yeah. I, I do believe it is a fine line and it's a good thing that we understand the, the difference between, um, basically those, those two, uh, points of view.
1: Yeah, no, no, that's a hundred percent. And, um, and that's one of the issues that really, that really, uh, is hard for people to understand because if people understood the difference between total depravity and total inability, I think a lot less people would feel pressured or guilted, if I can put it that way, into accepting Calvinism. Because as soon as someone says, oh yeah, you know, I don't accept the tea of the tulip, and Calvinists would say, oh, you don't believe that humanity is depraved, you don't believe that humanity is sinful, what you believe that humanity at its core has good of its own to be able to achieve salvation, uh, or, or as they accuse Pelagius, in history of teaching um and most people would be like well no and of course you know the Calvinists would bring up Romans 3 where all have fallen short of the glory of God that a poison is under their tongues and all they think about is sin and and the the depravity of mankind Ephesians 2 that you know we walked according to the will of the prince of the power of air the god of this age the devil and we walked in sin or in Corinthians where it talks about we were once fornicators adulterers and you know, we're guilted into being like, oh, wow, you know, man, T must be true. But then within that package, kind of hidden subtly in there is, yeah, but you can't even respond to the message of the gospel. But the Apostle Paul disagrees with that because um, uh, I, Romans 116, he teaches that, you know, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And that is the reason why he's not ashamed of it, because the gospel preached enables uh mankind to respond um it, there, there's nothing in scripture that teaches us that i cannot respond to god's provision in the gospel um titus 2:11 teaches that for the grace of god that brings salvation has appeared to all men um, you know and first timothy 2 4 says who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth um, it, you know there I I, I feel that it's really important for your listeners to understand the difference between total depravity and total inability. And In fact, actually, there's some prominent Calvinists that um, agree that this difference needs to be made, Um, that there wouldn't be confusion in in, in what the doctrine actually teaches, because, you know, both sides agree, we're sinful. Nobody's saying that we're not sinful, because, I mean, if we weren't sinful, we wouldn't need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? Right. so we're all agreeing that we're sinful. We're all agreeing that you know we're depraved. It's just that the disagreement lies with I do not believe that we are we are unable to respond to the message of the gospel. Um, it, there's examples all through Acts of where Paul goes into the synagogues, for example, and he uses the scriptures to persuade. And it says that day and night he persuaded. Uh, the Jews from scriptures, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, what is the purpose of persuasion? Or when Paul told Timothy that, you know, to be careful with the conduct or the way that you preach the gospel with gentleness, with humility, um, with wisdom, and from scripture, uh, because through the way that Timothy preaches, God would grant repentance um, to the people, and he grants repentance because why? Timothy's preaching the gospel of repentance. And if Timothy is preaching it in such a way where he's not distracting from the message of the gospel, well, the people, if they believe, would be granted salvation, would be granted the grace of God. Um, so I would just really underline, and underline the fact that we are held responsible to the truth of God. Um, that, that one famous verse that I feel like all Romanian families have hung up in their, in their house where Josh said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But a bit before that, from verse 15, Joshua 24, he says, um, and it seems evil, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a bit redundant to say choose if you're not able to choose. Um, and we're not saying uh, and to the Calvinist listeners, I am not saying that mankind is able to choose without the revelation of God, that mankind left to his own and I mean left completely to his own, is able to find God or is able to find salvation. No, I am saying man did need the message of the gospel revealed to him. Man did need for God to reveal himself through the, reveal his invisible attributes through all of creation. Man did need the prophets and the law to demonstrate to them that they're sinners in need of a Christ. And then men did need the gospel preached to them to show them who this Christ is that um, provides them the salvation.
0: So kind of kind of like looking at this you know i'll I'll try to remain i guess neutral Mm -hmm. um but because we're talking about total inability we're talking about whether or not a person can respond to the gospel to respond to god's word yeah and um i mean there's just a few things that are coming to mind either like hypothetical situations or or certain verses um so basically let's say let's let's establish like a certain hypothetical situation context that we we normally would see at a at an evangelism or at a church service, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a preacher who's preaching the gospel, and there are people in the in the audience in the pews who um, have yet to dedicate their lives to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you? So let's let's. How about I'll, I'll let you finish this. How how does that person who is sitting in the audience who has not uh, yet given their life to Christ, or they they don't know God, or they don't they know, they don't know Jesus. How can, how can that person respond to the gospel? Is it, is it, you know, the Holy spirit working through the words of the pastor? Is it, is it something, do they feel something and then they kind of have to click yes or no, whether or not they can kind of be transformed or is it an instant transfer, instant transformation? How would you kind of uh, describe that? Because this is the hypothetical that I'm kind of like imagining yeah, 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 when yeah. we're talking about this, but what are, maybe there's different ways that it can happen. What would you think?
1: Um, well, I, I I believe it as a simple as Scripture says it. Um, so I, I know there's I know there's okay. So there, there's there's the issue of how does the person come to believe right? If they have a sinful nature, if they have a nature that is is uh, as Calvinists would love to put it, at enmity with God, which is a fancy way of saying they're enemies of God. Um, they, they they have a nature or a disposition um, of 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 sinning right of, of hating. Um, that which is contrary to god and i would agree to all that i would have no issue with that um all i would point out is cannot the sinner admit that he is a sinner uh, a sinner when god reveals it to him can, can he not just uh, would he not be able to be re- reconciled to god by admitting yes i am a sinner because that's the first thing that needs to happen right? Um, I, I remember, Marcus, in the, in the last episode that you, 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 you put out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you put it very well that man needs to understand that he is a sinner, right? Man needs to understand that there's a consequence for the behavior or his life that he has lived up to this point. Man needs to understand that he is underneath um, or he's living in, 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 in servitude to a false God or to a God who has lifted himself up uh, it, with the aim to replace God. And Obviously, we know that this is the God of the age that Ephesians 2 is talking about, the devil. And how does man come to know that he is a sinner? Well, we know that very clearly through the law. Paul talks about, uh, um, in in Romans 2 and 3, he talks about how the law was given to demonstrate to the Jews that you're sinful. Um, The law was given to demonstrate that all are sold to sin. It wasn't given, and this this is the interesting thing about Romans. Romans, the main argument throughout all of the book of Romans is not, an argument between free willers and, and Calvinists, as, as many people would believe. It's actually an argument of whether we are righteous according to the law or righteous according to faith. So the Jews believe that the law was given to them as, as little stepping stones that they achieve in order to become righteous. And Paul was saying, no, the law was given to you to show that you are a sinner. You are a person who is in need of Christ. And then um, Galatians, uh, when Paul was rebuking the church of Galatia, Or is that how you say Galatians? I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what the city would be called. I think so, uh, yeah. Yeah, he was was rebuking them. And uh, why was he rebuking them? Because at the start, he he says, who has bewitched you to leave the gospel of grace and to turn to the works of the law? Because don't you understand that the works of the law is, is not given to you for salvation, but is given to condemn you or to show that you are a sinner? Why is it important for you to see that you're a sinner? It's so that you could see the need of Christ. And you spoke about this, uh, Marcus, in your, um, in your episode. Is Because if you don't see the need, um, actually, I was talking recently with someone, um, actually it was a previous guest on your podcast, so I won't mention the name, but this person asked me, you know, how could I present Jesus Christ to the youth as being more relevant? Like, how can I make him relevant? Because they're just not seeing him as relevant anymore. And What I said back to this person was uh, around the lines of, it doesn't matter whether they see him as relevant or not. What they need to see is their need for him. Because Jesus was not brought into this world so that he could be relevant to your hobbies or your interests or your pursuits or whatever. He was brought into this world because there's a need in your heart. And this need was first pointed out by the law. Now, what I'd like to point out to my Calvinist brothers is that this law is revelation given by God to us who are in the darkness. It was given with a purpose. It was given with a purpose so that we are able to respond to it and realize, wait a minute, I'm a sinner. God have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Kind of like Cornelius in Acts 11, where, you know, this was a man who lived amongst the Jews. He probably was already convicted by his conscience throughout his whole life. And then when he was stationed by the Romans in Judea, he probably read the Jewish law and he realized this is what my conscience is convicting me of. This is uh, God. And, and, and there's a penalty of sin over me. And he became a pious man. Uh, Acts 11 teaches where he, he was praying and he was uh, seeking God. And then God sent him the gospel because of this. And what is the gospel? Well, after um, uh, Cornelius realized I'm a sinner I need of, of a savior, I'm in need of saving. He sent Jesus Christ who all the Jews would know fulfills all the sacrificial requirements of the lamb, of the temple sacrifices. He's the person who God decided to put all iniquity upon, uh, kind of like the 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 scapegoat um, or or the, or the lamb that uh, the Jews would put in in, in their rituals. They, there's there's a a ram that they would confess all the sins of the people while putting their hands on the head of it, and then they would lead it to the wilderness. Jesus was this person that was with uh, uh, all the sins of the world was laid upon. And then he is offered, his righteousness is offered in exchange for our iniquity. So kind of back to the example where I said, where we were born into a world of dirt. Well, this dirty clothes and this dirt that we were wearing, he took upon himself. And then he took off the clean robe of righteousness that, was upon, that, that he was wearing and put it on us. So the way I would say it to you, uh, Marcus, is that once a person hears the gospel in the assembly of Christ, the gospel enables them to respond, first and foremost. Paul makes this very clear in Romans 1.16 that, you know, um, how can they, uh, I mean, sorry, where he says that the gospel is the power of salvation to all those who believe. And then in uh, Romans 10, where he, uh, where he says that, um, that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And further on, how can they believe if no one preaches to them? Well, after you preach to them and they heard it, the gospel enables them to make a choice. And the choice that they, that they make is, yes or no and you rightfully pointed out marcus is how the how is the holy spirit working through this well he's working through the gospel all of scripture is god breathed um and this is where i differ with my with my armenian armenian friends because um if i'm not mistaken the armenians kind of like you know they fall into that guilt trip of having to accept total inability and they believe that there has to be a prevenient work of the spirit a prevenient grace that kind of um Um, before the gospel message is preached or while it's being preached, the spirit has to kind of all of a sudden zap your mind to be able to respond. And I'm saying that's not necessary. The gospel is the work of the spirit. It's While it's being preached to you, it's working on your heart. The spirit is convicting you of your sin, as scripture says. And the spirit is pointing to you that you need Christ. And then the choice is to you. The responsibility is yours. You have the ability to respond. What will you do? With the gospel that is preached to you if you believe it um scripture clearly teaches that then you will receive the grace of god that comes through this faith um, um it, it, ephesians 2 8 teaches very clearly that th- this salvation this saving grace that is given to us is through faith and um it is a gift of god to us this grace does that kind of make sense to you? Or no, it does. Yeah,
0: you, you basically, you answer the question. Yeah, okay. you, you pick. Sorry, I kind of rambled uh, again. Yeah. No, 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 it's good. I like that you kind of like set the situation. And uh, I, I love what, how you rebuked our, our mutual friend. I don't know who it is. You, you won't tell me until after this episode's done. Uh, but basically saying, <laughs> <laughs> basically well, saying no, he, like, he, we don't he, have he. to make Christ relevant in this, yeah. in this society. Like, why do we have to change who Christ is? We have to preach that Christ is a necessity to every single person. Because mm. the way I like to think of it, the difference of me right now in this, I guess you can, in this redeemed state as a follower of Christ, the difference between me right now and who I was, or think of the difference between me and the worst person on this planet right now is a cross, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Yeah, And that's with every single one of us. It's 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 not by our own doing, and I'm not trying to like talk about the the. the components of our episode right now, but it's basically, Mm -hmm. it's all through Jesus. So I I like that that they kind of set the scene with that, but, um, yeah, you made your, your opinion stated and, uh, I I can kind of, I don't know if I want to say, I I mean, I guess I can, I can, can see how, how that applies, uh, having the Holy Spirit convict the heart and then having the free will, I guess, to, to reject that. I can see how that, that makes sense in, in, in that kind of branch of theology too. So no, Mm -hmm. well done. Well done.
1: Um, yeah, no, it, it's it's um it, it like I would just like to clearly point out is why why do um, some Calvinists seem to exclude the preaching of the gospel as a working of the Spirit on the heart of an individual? Um, it is a working of the Spirit. It it is something that is that is that is working upon their heart because. Uh, the, the scriptures in the gospel are all God breathed. They're spirit breathed. They're their spirit filled. Um, They're work of the spirit. In fact, the apostles did not write scripture or the message of the gospel through any other means but by the inspiration of the spirit. Um, it is something that God is using um, uh, to, to work at the heart of an individual. And I would insist or I would challenge Calvinists to find me where in scripture that it teaches that we are unable to respond to that revelation. I'm not saying that, I'm, I'm not challenging them to find where in scripture it says that we can't of our own when we're left to ourselves reach God or attain to salvation. I'm saying that when God reveals the gospel to you, when God reveals the message and the light to you, where in scripture does it say, that we are unable to respond. Where in Scripture does it say that this gospel message is ineffective, with its intended purpose of offering you salvation, without a um, unconditional election to happen beforehand, without a regeneration to happen before faith, as Calvinists would teach?
0: And that's and, a very good point. Yeah, that's a very good point uh, because. You're right. There, there isn't, there isn't uh, evidence of of the latter that you just mentioned. Um, that other side of it. They, they, they kind of look at one side of it and then kind of take it as a whole. But you're right. That's that's definitely um something we can look at. But you you mentioned it here, and we're gonna transition to the second point mm-hmm. of uh, unconditional election. And uh, the funny thing is, when when you kind of to the average person, to the new Christian, the new believer maybe in layman's terms, if they're asked to define Calvinism, or if they hear the word Calvinism, Mm -hmm. the the first thing they think of, and maybe the only thing they think of, is the unconditional election part of it, right? They think about the elect, and how God chooses who is saved. That's like, that's literally like the bread and butter of Calvinism to the people who don't understand it, basically. Because obviously, there are five points to it, and they're Mm -hmm. all, Mm -hmm. I guess, equally important, and they're all kind of tied to each other and build upon each other but yeah the one thing the, the one thing that can be derived from uh from from just an average person who maybe doesn't hasn't done a lot of research into this is the unconditional election and that's why I want to I want to talk about it right now um but Tim how how can you define uh unconditional election and and why is it uh, significant that we discuss this from both sides
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, and like you said, it's, it's, it's a logical progression from the first point of total inability. is that if every man is unable to respond to the gospel and all are trapped um, by God's decree in their own sin, um, and, and all are born sinful and inherited, uh, uh, inherited this sinful nature, if some would teach inherited uh, the original sin guilt of Adam, which I reject, um, obviously uh, God would have to choose then who responds to the gospel. And this is the unconditional election, because Calvinists would teach that um, God has elected or chosen to save a particular number of people before the world began, and God chooses these individuals for no other reason than God's own self-glorification. In other words, there is no condition that the person must meet in order to be chosen. Um, The elect aren't chosen because God foresees them, as some mistakenly believe that uh, Calvinists believe. Uh, but that the choice of each individual for salvation is completely unconditional at least in our perspective um some, some calvinists would say that god does have his reasons for choosing who he chooses but they're a mystery to us um from our perspective it seems arbitrary it seems um you know uh kind of random at a, and at a whim um and it's all for his self-glorification um and that's pretty much the definition of unconditional election in uh, the Calvinist terms.
0: Um, now, what's your um, obviously this 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 one can uh, if if you're passionate about if you're passionate enough about it, and you're kind of looking at it from the other side, there are a lot of and I'm assuming from from your perspective there are a lot of ways that you can kind of. Um, Attack this point mm-hmm. and kind of disprove it. Um, what are ways, uh, since you just defined it right now, uh, what are ways, whether it's based on scripture or um, just did de- being uh, deductive or whatever, what are ways yeah. that you can kind of uh, find the holes in, in, in this uh, component mm-hmm. of Calvinism?
1: Yeah, and and this is yeah, and and, and like you said, this is this is a, a doctrine that many many Christians or or, or people who don't really know. Um, don't even know what Calvinism is actually, but they believe this form of election to some degree because of influence from preachers that they didn't know were Calvinists that were preaching on election. And um, they will immediately be aghast and they're like, what, you don't believe in election? And I'll point out, yes, I do believe in election, 100% I believe in election. But what I want to point out is that just because we may see the word elect or election within a verse, it does not have the same definition of the, uh, um, um, of the system that Calvinism supplies. Um, the election in scripture is not always an election to salvation. There's many different types of election. If we look at the base definition of election, it means to choose. It's to choose for a specific purpose or a specific thing. Uh, um, and there's many elections that God makes in scripture. Um, there's one, for example, the choosing of the nation of Israel. And, and this is what a lot of especially in the romanian churches uh, um, uh, they make a, a big mistake because uh, they believe that the choosing of the nation of israel meant to salvation so then a lot of romanians feel like oh i need to identify with the nation of israel so i'm the new israel now the christians are the new israel and I, all i want to point out is no there was an election of the jews that god made in scripture that's clearly taught in genesis 12 3 deuteronomy 7 7 to 9 and romans uh 3 2 and you can supplement that with romans 9 where God chose the Israelites for a specific purpose of bringing the light into the world, the covenant, the priesthood, that was all meant to signify Jesus Christ, and most specifically, the law and the prophets that were supposed to be fulfilled and culminate in the personhood of Jesus Christ. He chose them for a specific purpose, but in choosing them, that did not mean that they were saved. And this, was, and this is an argument that Paul has with the people in Romans 3 and Romans 9. it's it's not an argument between Calvinists and free willers. It's actually an argument that Paul has had for a long time with Jews because the Jews would get offended at this and they'd be like, well, uh, um, if I'm not saved by my election and God still chose me to use me as a Jew, then why am I blamed if even through my sinful actions, good came out of it, like the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, for example. Um, And Paul is saying like, "Well, no, no, no. Who are you to say how God uses you? I mean, who are you to respond to God and say, why have you used me like this? Or why have you done this like this with me? God is able to do whatever he wants. And I would point people to Jeremiah 31 and, and Timothy also, where it shows that the pot that God made, the pot that God makes, he makes with a purpose, a good purpose, always to use it for a good purpose. Now, the person who God is making for a good purpose can either choose to submit and willingly follow with God's purpose and then God will use him as a vessel of honor or the person can rebel and God because he's sovereign and can do whatever he wants he'll still use him but he'll use him in his rebellion because that's what the person wanted to do Um, and it will be to and and just because God used him it won't be to his benefit it will be to his um, destruction or it'll be in spite of of him being used Um, now what I'd like to point out again and please read Jeremiah 31 and Timothy where Paul says that um, you know, in the house of God, there's vessels of gold and silver, there's vessels of wood and stone, and there's vessels of honor and dishonor. Um, and then he advises Timothy uh, a verse or two down where he says, Therefore, cleanse yourself of the latter sins so that you may be a vessel of honor in the house of God. So, the way or, or what type of vessel you are in God's hand depends upon if you submit to God's good purpose or if you refuse to submit. That has nothing to do with salvation, really. That has to do with God's choosing. So that's an election to service. There's many different types of elections um, uh, 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 that God made throughout the world. Even in the nation of Israel, he chose different types of uh, different people in that nation for different purposes. And it wasn't to their salvation. He even chose pagan kings in order to punish Israel. It wasn't to the salvation of those pagan kings. Um, You know, the the Pharaoh rebuked King Josiah saying, you know, don't come against me because God chose me to go up against the Syrians. I don't, don't stand against you or You're going to die. And Josiah disobeyed. and He was killed. Nebuchadnezzar was chosen by God to punish the nation of Israel. Thankfully, Nebuchadnezzar later on down the road, realized his sinfulness before God, uh, because of the revelation that God kept sending him through Daniel and through those people around him. And I, I do believe Nebuchadnezzar repented. And I hope to see him in heaven. Um, um that would be absolutely awesome by the way. Um,
0: that would be an awesome conversation to have. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that would be awesome. Um, so it, 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 one thing that I could point people to uh, is the parable of the wedding feast um, in Matthew 22, 1 to 14. I'm not going to read it. We did it during the, the, the other podcast, but there's, there's at least three or four different types of elections that God made there, um, different choices that he made there. And they don't necessarily have to do with salvation except for the last one. And even the last one was conditional. Salvation is conditional. What is the condition? Faith. You have to believe on the gospel in order to be saved. um That condition, because immediately Calvinists would be like, "Oh, so are you saying you earned your salvation?" Absolutely not. And like I pointed out on the podcast, is there is no glory for me if while I was burning in the fire or in, in you know in the in a build, burning building. That Christ came bursting through the door, having to suffer all these burns or whatever, and pick me up and threw me out of the house. I can't be like, oh, yeah, guys. <laughs> you know, it was all me. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I look like a fool. I would I would be stupid to resist Christ at that point. I would be stupid. But yet some people do. And this is where I'd like to point out the condition is, is that I accepted The offer of the gospel that I accepted it through faith because grace comes through faith. Um, That is the means that God chose to bring it to this world. Because then again, Calvinists and sorry, I'm kind of going further on, but Calvinists would say, "Oh, so is salvation 99% God and 1% man?" I'm I'm sorry, but that's a false dichotomy right there. Salvation is 100% of God. God saved me. I did not save me. I did nothing to save me. But my responsibility is a hundred percent on me to accept that salvation. Um, C.S. Lewis put it this way. Because God obviously desires all men to be saved. And sorry, I'm doing this off memory. So if I misquote C.S. Lewis, he'll forgive me in heaven. I'll meet with him. Yeah.
0: You'll have that conversation with him yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: so, uh, so God has a desire for all men to be saved, right? And Calvinists would be like, well, if God desires all men to be saved, is God too weak to fulfill his desire? And then we'd be like, oh, no, no, no. but God wants all people to choose whether to be saved um, or, or, to, or to choose to accept his offer of salvation, uh, like willingly, because then what kind of love is that if it's forced upon you? You know, if i made a potion and forced a girl to love me, is that really love? Would anyone, even in our faculty, agree that that's love? You know, C.S. Lewis once said that God is recognizably good. And why is he recognizably good? It's because if, we, he, if he's not recognizably good and we just say he's good because he is God, which, you know, I would agree he's good because he's God, but he's recognizably good because as C.S. Lewis said, you might as well be worshiping an all-powerful demon without knowing it, but God is recognizably good. And he has demonstrated his goodness to us that exhorts us to repentance. And to finish the, sorry, the previous quote of C.S. Lewis, my mind is kind of wandering in his writing, but uh, he said um, th- that uh, if God desires all men to be saved, but he also desires for man to accept the offer of salvation, and Calvinists would say, well, this is a contradiction. How does this happen? How can he have two desires that are contradic- seemingly contradictory? And he he pointed this out, he, 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 he kind of resolved this issue in, in an analogy that we always do, for example, if I had a kid and I wanted his bedroom to be clean, his bedroom was an absolute mess. It was just disgusting. There's moldy salami underneath the bed. There's, you know, there's pops and can bottles and everywhere. And you just, you know, it's just a mess and it's all over the floor. I wanted it to be clean because guests are coming over and I want it clean. But I also want my son to be able to build up the ability or to be able to to free uh, freely clean it himself as a display of obedience of actual obedience to me, you know, not of obedience where I'm literally grabbing his hands and picking up the clothes and like putting it all away and, and, and forcing him to do it. But no, that he would listen to my command and go clean up his clothes and put it all away because that's what relationship is about and that's what God desires with us so. So you have the desire for your son to clean his room. But above this desire, you have a desire for him to do it willingly. So this is how it works with God. God desires for all men to be saved. And this is an incredible desire. But above this desire, he wants for mankind to choose this and freely accept him and love him because of the love he first showed us. Because of the sacrifice he first showed us. Because of his willingness to die the death that we deserved. And, uh, and his willingness to do, to do the, the, the most unexpected, the most undeserving, unmeritorious thing for us. Like, we didn't deserve that, um, in a good way, I'm saying. Um, but God did it for us, and he wanted for us to freely choose that. Why? Because that is love worth having, as C.S. Lewis put it. It's a relationship. It's something that is valuable in the eyes of God, I believe. Um, and, And in fact, I would point out that it really demonstrates the relationship that he has in his Trinitarian Godhead. Whereas the only way that our God can be the true God of love as compared to Allah or any other God is that love is relational. And if God is Trinitarian, one God in three persons, he's able to have this relationship of love within himself and actually live out this truth that he is love. Whereas Allah before mankind or before anything created, who did he have to love? In fact, if you actually read in uh, Islamic teachings, I don't wanna get too far in that, how did I get here? But if you read in Islamic teachings, one of the 99 attributes of Allah, none of them is love. There's one that is kind of like compassion-ish, mercy-ish, but even then that is rooted in his wrath and desire to destroy and actually obliterate everyone and everything. Um, That is why our Trinitarian God Fully demonstrates this conditional love that he offers to us. Well, actually, no, his love is unconditional. He just loves everyone, um, but uh, salvation so I was, is conditional in faith.
0: So I was going to ask you a question, but as you were kind of continuing to explain it, I'm going to try to guess your answer. Oh, okay. Uh, just because I feel like I feel like I can kind of put it together now. So we we were discussing under the this umbrella of unconditional election that. Um, that election in in God's word exists. Election. You were saying that uh, there is election for service. There's predestination for ministry. For uh, what family you're raised in, and for every other mm-hmm. aspect of faith besides salvation. So that that's that's kind of where we drew the line, well, or where you were drawing the line there's, earlier.
1: There's election in salvation too. He elects the faithful. So he chooses the faithful to be saved. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, 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 that's a
0: good (laughs) point. I'm glad you brought that up. But what I was going to refer to, and I'm going to try to guess your answer, is Acts chapter 9 with the Pauline conversion, uh, because we know that Uh, beforehand Paul was faithful to to killing people, uh, wasn't really faithful to the Lord. And um, so I was going to ask that question, but let me try to, from your kind of perspective, let me try to guess what you would say. Okay. You would say (laughs) that even though Christ intervened intervened on his road to Damascus, um, he saw that God was recognizably good, but it's still, I guess you would say that it still took his personal decision to just preach the word of God in the synagogues to go and, and, mm-hmm. and just, um, set himself apart for ministry and in, in, in all aspects of life. So is that like a, obviously you would probably provide a much more in-depth answer with, with resources and evidences and, and all that but is that like the direction you would go into or am i just totally off the mark
1: no 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 you're you're, you're going pretty good and to, yeah and it, it, it's very true that yes paul did choose certain things but i would even point out that even in the demonstration of jesus christ or the vision that jesus christ gave to paul that vision to him it is not irresistible and that's kind of going into irresistible grace now but um, it was not irresistible in the sense that it took control of Paul's mind and completely wiped away his sinful nature and replaced it with a with a willing nature. It didn't. God re- revealed himself in such a way to Paul where I would agree is pretty powerful, pretty miraculous and pretty, you know, wow. You know, and, and I would agree that Paul, you would be a fool to reject Christ at that point. Yet there were people in scriptures that even then with such miraculous displays of Christ's authority still rejected Christ. I would point to Judas Iscariot. He was with Christ. He saw the miracles. He saw everything. He saw everything that happened and yet in his own sinful intentions still refused the message uh, of of Christ, still refused the personhood of Christ and rejected him and turned away from him. Um, And Calvinists would argue that Judas was, was um, uh, predestined, and I would ask, where? It was prophesied that, he, that there would be a man that would sell Christ. Yes, prophecy does not mean determined, though. Prophecy means a foretelling of the future, um, a, 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 um, um, revealing what a future event is going to be. Not only that, they would point to Jesus Christ saying it would be better if he wasn't born. Well, sure, anyone who died in their sin it would be better if they weren't born. That's not a statement of his predestination. That's a statement of the consequence of his actions. Um, uh, and uh, another thing with with Paul's election though in Acts 9 is that in God choosing the apostle Paul for preaching the gospel it is not to the neglect of everyone else it is not to the neglect of everyone else that that uh, God revealed himself to uh, in such a way to the apostle Paul but it's actually to the benefit of everyone else because the apostle Paul then went on and arguably became the most influential person in Christendom aside from the person of Jesus Christ. Arguably, more people were converted and strengthened in their faith through the writings and the ministry that the Holy Spirit performed through the Apostle Paul than anyone else in the history of uh, a mankind. I don't know um, who's going to be the highest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I know that one quote of that verse about John the Baptist that Jesus made about he's the, <laughs> the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's a whole other explanation for that, but I'm saying that the Apostle Paul was incredibly used by God in this ministry. Um, And number two, another thing I would like to point out is we don't know the way that God was already working on the Apostle Paul through other means up until that point. You see scripture is very, very uh, sufficient and it's it's an intended purpose of of expressing the, the message that is intended in that passage but it doesn't give it an exhaustive details of absolutely everything that happened. I don't know if the apostle Paul had uh, debates and deliberations with other Christians that he imprisoned while they're in prison through scriptures. And maybe he was slowly being convinced. I don't know what was going on with the apostle Paul, but I don't see, I don't see how Calvinists could see uh, or could understand the revelation or the, the vision of Jesus Christ appearing to the apostle Paul as something as if um, like um, it irresistibly changed him, it irresistibly regenerated him, it unconditionally elected him. I don't think so. I, 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 I really don't think so. The apostle Paul, it, like, there wasn't a magic potion that was poured into his mouth and made him all of a sudden get up. He saw a vision, yes, but that vision still had to impact his faculties. In other words, he had to see it with his eyes. It had to be processed in his brain. It had to reach his heart. It had to reach his soul. It had to reach his spirit. And Paul still had to process that with his own faculties. Of course, I believe the Holy Spirit was impacting him and convicting him of his sin, convicting him of his need to repent, but it still had to go through his own faculties. If people are truly unconditionally elected and irresistibly graced, why did God have to send the vision of Jesus Christ to the Apostle Paul? Why did he have to do it that way? Couldn't he have just, kaboom, there you go. Apostle Paul is a Christian now. I believe it still would have been pretty impactful. But there's probably a purpose as to why he did it that specific way. Um, and I could go into further detail about how the Paul, the Paul used his conversion story in other ways. But, um, yeah, if, does that kind of answer your, your question?
0: Oh, no, it does. It does. Yeah. I, think, well, I, I think mean, it was definitely a, more extensive than my guess. I, I, but yeah, yeah. I, think,
1: I think you did a great job, though. Sorry, man.
0: <laughs> oh, no, appreciate it. Appreciate it. No, because I know that's that's probably something that would be what people would like bring up and and address because what did Paul ever do? But then it's good to know that yes, the the word of God is selective in, in what is written, what is revealed there. And you never know the conversations that he had beforehand and that's something to consider. But, uh, I was just going to say point number three, we have the most controversial of, (laughs) of the five components. And, um, like, as, as I've told you earlier, um, for me, when it comes to, I guess my agreement when it to the certain components of Calvinism, um, it, it, I work from the outside in. So total depravity, uh, we actually both agree on. Um, and, and then uh, if we go to, at the end, the perseverance of, of the saints, there's a certain subcomponent that I, I believe in as well. And then you kind of work yourself in and you have irresistible grace and unconditional election, which I'm iffy on. And then whatever, there, there's arguments from both sides. And we see scripture that argues for it. And then we can kind of go against it, as we talked about in the unconditional election.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, but
0: then we have limited atonement, which I think is like probably borderline heresy. I don't know. I think it's it's very dangerous to. to I mean, you would you would not even preach this from from the pulpit. This is something that you would kind of just keep out uh, at all costs, just because of uh, its impl- uh, implications. But uh, mm-hmm. in 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 short words, how would you define uh, limited atonement for for the people out there who are not familiar with it?
1: yeah um and and, and yeah I, I would agree it's, it's a pretty it's a pretty um it's a pretty uh, hurt <laughs> like a hard doctrine when you first hear about it in fact this is the doctrine that most calvinists um say that at the moment of the conversion to calvinism or the when they when they when they believed in the doctrines of calvinism this was the doctrine that just hurt them to the most john piper i think described um just crying for three days um matt chandler said it was like an itchy blanket that he he had to wear um, and other calvinists would just talk about like just the sorrow that they went through um but the funny thing is if i were a calvinist if i accepted the first two points i would agree that limited atonement is a logical progression but that's the thing though limited atonement is not a doctrine that is presented by scriptures it is not a doctrine that you can exegete from the verses of scriptures, in my opinion, at least. But it's a doctrine that you have to exegete or read onto the text of scriptures that was already prepared, or uh, if I could say, already uh, uh, um, uh, forced onto you, imposed onto you, from your previous two points of TULIP, of total inability and unlimited, con- uh, or sorry, unconditional election. So the logical, uh, the logical conclusion is, well, if God decided that all people would be unable to respond to the gospel, and they're, and, and they're totally depraved, they're totally guilty and worthy of condemnation, um, and not that they were only worthy of condemnation, but that they're totally unable to respond to any revelation or any light that is sent to them, which is, uh, sorry, kind of a side note, what is the point of God revealing himself throughout nature and all these things, um, if they were totally unable to respond to that? So for uh, approximately, give or take, you know, a couple thousand years, for 4,000 years until the, uh, the, the appearance of Christ onto the scene, you have a bunch of people living in the dark with absolutely no revelation from God or, or with, with God revealing himself through all nature. Uh, nature. But uh, they, aren't, they aren't able to respond to that. And the only purpose of God revealing himself to nature is so that he can condemn them for something that they didn't do or for something that they weren't able to decide, sorry, um, because they were born that way and they can't change it but yet he's holding them responsible for something that they couldn't change. It's such a weird system to live in. But anyways, people are totally unable, and God unconditionally elects um, those that are totally unable to respond to the gospel. Well, obviously, if God unconditionally elects some people, not everyone, to respond to the gospel and to be saved, that means that Christ's atonement or um, for those who don't know what atonement, atonement means, that Christ's um, sacrifice, what his sacrifice accomplished, in other words, forgiveness, and the washing away of our sins, and, and, and uh, us receiving his righteousness in place, all of that packaged, if, if I could say, is in the word atonement. That's limited. It's not extended to everyone. It's not offered to everyone. Um, and so if, if I can kind of read a more kind of succinct way of saying it. It's most Calvinists teach that God God limits the atonement to the elect alone. This means that Christ's work on the cross was intended only to heal those who God elected, not the rest of the world. Some teach that his blood would be wasted if, if it were spilt for those who do not ever come to him for healing. But the issue is, on my part, is God chose for them not to come to him for healing. And that is completely contrary to what Jesus taught Nicodemus in John 3. Um, We all know John 3.16, right? Uh, You know, for for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Um, But the thing is, if we read in the passage or if we read in the context of of, of John 3.16, he talks about that just in the same way. If you remember the story of Moses, how when they were in the wilderness and the people rebelled against God, and he sent serpents, serpents among them to bite them as a punishment. And the people cried out for mercy and cried out for forgiveness. And God commanded Moses to make kind of like a, a statue of a serpent and put it on a post on a stick and raise it up in the middle of the camp. And he said that whoever's bitten by a snake and looks upon that serpent on the, on the, on the post, the serpent made out of brass, if I'm not mistaken, if they look upon that, they'll be healed. And Jesus said that just in the same way that Moses, verse 14 in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but, the world through him, but that the world through him might be saved. Um, and this is what I, I want to point out is that this offer is extended to all who would look upon Christ who was lifted up on the cross. Obviously, metaphorically speaking here, it's, it's, it's a bit of imagery here. But if you if you look to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you believe on it, you will be saved. The atonement of Jesus Christ is not limited to the unconditionally elect. Why? Because we're not totally unable to respond to the gospel. So I kind of like to do a logical progression in the backwards, if I can put it that way. Christ's atonement is not limited. It's extended to all people. It's offered to all people. I'm not saying it's applied to all people because it's applied to those who accept, right? Um, Just in the same way that the, the, the robe of righteousness is put on those who accept it. Kind of like in the parable of the wedding feast I spoke about before, that one man that was found there, and he didn't have a wedding garment. Well, how could he have a wedding garment if they were brought from the streets and they were brought from everywhere by the servants? You know, you don't, you're not prepared to have a wedding garment. You're, dragged, you're brought into the wedding feast. Like, where, where's the wedding garment going to come from? Well, it's obvious from the message of the gospel that the master of the feast, the king, provided a wedding garments for everyone. But this one individual decided not to accept it decided to come in his own, um, kind of like the Jews who decided to come in their own righteousness according to the law, even though the law was only meant to condemn them. Um, So Christ's atonement is offered to everyone. And if it's offered to everyone, that means that uh, uh, there is a condition by which it is applied to. And what is that condition? It's if you believe the gospel, if you accept it, his election then is made on, it, 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 it are those who believe. So he chooses those who believe to be the ones that are saved in the end. Um, um, and then those, and, and, and then if, if you were saved, if, you, if the Christ atonement has been applied to you, well then that means that you weren't unable to respond to the gospel, but you were able to respond to the gospel. And why was the gospel extended to you? Because you were totally depraved. You were depraved and in need of a savior. You were in need of the message of Jesus Christ. You were in need um, uh, uh, of, uh, of salvation from this disaster, from this condemnation that is coming upon you.
0: Um, you mentioned uh, this this quote, not this quote, but you mentioned earlier that a lot of the way that um, people kind of support this this uh, this component, this point, this limited atonement is that um for those people who don't accept Christ then the the blood of Jesus Christ would be wasted on on mm-hmm. on them basically yeah and I think um I guess the the counter argument for that is that the blood of Jesus Christ is not only sufficient but is also efficient I think that's mm-hmm. um that's like the argument against it that even though not all people come to Christ it I mean his, it's it's not wasted because it's it, mm-hmm. it is efficient in in everything it, it does for for our salvation. It's it's sufficient yeah. for everything that is required for our mm-hmm. salvation. So um, that, I think that's what I I don't know if this is what we talked about last time, but it's definitely something that I've heard as a yeah. counter argument. But uh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So are you saying Calvinists kind of make the counter argument, or?
0: No, no, no. So the counter argument oh, comes okay. from sort of like more I don't want to say Armenian side saying, because you're saying
1: against the limited atonement view. Okay. Exactly. That's, against that's what limited atonement. What I that's what I thought. I just wanted to clarify that because I was I will confused as to how that would be a Calvinist argument. But uh, yeah, no, and I would agree. I would agree that the, the blood of Jesus Christ is efficient. But not only that, um, I would like to question what what was what do Calvinists believe that the blood of Jesus the purpose of blood of Jesus Christ is? The blood of Jesus Christ's purpose um, isn't necessary. Uh, not necessarily isn't um, to effectively uh, 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 regenerate or save those who are pre-selected. The blood of Jesus, is, uh, the blood of Jesus Christ, the purpose of it is to save all those who will believe. All those who will believe. That is very clear throughout Scripture, and that was clear from the verses I read from John three. Um, later on, I believe it's in, was it in John 10, uh, uh, where, where Jesus uh, describes how um, that uh, once he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. And we talked about in the podcast how the main purpose of Jesus Christ while he was down from heaven on earth, as John puts it, wasn't to save all people. It wasn't to draw all people to himself at the time. No, he was only to, to, to draw those who the father had given to him and who had the father given to him while Jesus Christ was on earth the disciples. Why? Because Jesus had a few main purposes while he was on earth. His first main purpose was to be crucified. That was his main purpose. He did not want to avoid that. In fact, he acted in such a way to purposely bring about his crucifixion to, uh, 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 to keep the, the, the rulers of the age blinded uh, from the mystery so that they would crucify the Lord of glory, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 2. And then another purpose of his was to find who the Father had given to him. In other words, the disciples. So then he can do what purpose number three is, to teach them all the gospel, all the meanings of the parables that he spoke to the Pharisees in secret, so that after he ascended, he told them that you would preach or that you would proclaim it from the rooftops. Everything I told you in secret, that you would shout it just like Peter did in Acts. Um, where 3,000 people uh, came to salvation. So the blood of Jesus Christ um, is absolutely effective in doing what its purpose was, to save those who believed. And it's efficient, like you said, Marcus, in doing that. It's extraordinarily efficient in doing that. It's it's efficient to the point where it absolutely does save you if you believe. Kind of like Paul boasts in Roman 8, death, where is your sting? Where are you? Who will stand against me? It's because it's God who justifies me now. Whereas before, when I was under sin, God condemned me, yes, and Satan accused me. Actually, that's the meaning of his name, the accuser. Satan accused me. God condemned me, or the law condemned me. But now it is God who justifies me. and Who can stand against God? Because the blood of Jesus Christ is absolutely effective in saving those who believe.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, and I think if uh, I guess the funny thing is, the ironic thing is that if you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, you can argue that Jesus's ministry on Earth, the three and a half years, mm-hmm. was Calvinist in a sense. If yeah. You're kind of, <laughs> of limiting your scope to that. It's like a, it, it's pretty yeah. much Calvinism. But and, then and, and, we have to also, yeah, consider Matthew it, twenty-eight, yeah, the yeah, Acts, yeah, yeah. and then going forward.
1: Yeah, and, and it's funny because, uh, um, so that that specific doctrine. Of, of Jesus purposely keeping the, the, the rulers of the age in the dark is, is known to theologians as uh, judicial hardening. So God in his justice continues the hardening of the already hard hearts and callous hearts of the Jews in order to bring about a greater purpose. But what I'd like to point out to the people is that this judicial hardening is temporary for a time, and it's actually to the benefit of those Jews. Because afterwards, after Jesus was crucified, the disciples weren't hiding anything anymore. Because God didn't use irresistible means to harden them. He didn't use kind of like, you know, kind of like, uh, 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 um, kind of like just mind, mind uh, control. But he used, diff- he used actual means that exist to us, like parables. Like Jesus explaining things in difficult ways, like eat my flesh and drink my blood. To them, that's like, what are you talking? Man, you're crazy. Um, but then to his disciples, he would explain that afterwards. Um, and the disciples, after Jesus was risen again, would explain it to them all. This wasn't, it, 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 and I love this, because what this demonstrates is God's absolute sovereignty in using our choices to still meet his intended purpose. Um, uh, one example I like to use, and I use it during the previous podcast, is the, 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 the two chess masters. One chess master, to in order to ensure his absolute victory, Have to play both sides of the board. This chess master is called Calvin. He has to play both sides of the board in order to win. Whereas uh, um, uh, the other chess master, um, I don't know what to name him, Uh, you know, just the other chess master. (laughs) Um, Armin. Well, I don't really agree with Armin. (laughs) Not technically. But uh, 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 sure, Armin, let's just say Armin. (laughs) Arminius, good old Armin. That sounds like a East Indian name. Armin, he, uh, uh, he doesn't have to play both sides of the board, but everyone who comes against him, he beats them one by one, just no problem, and he'll never lose because, dude, he invented the game of chess. He knows absolutely every move possible, and he can even use the other person's move against them because uh, um, he can draw them in a little trap. He can He can kind of like circumvent them, and there's no possible way for him to lose because he is just the master. He's absolutely sovereign. And a little caveat for the Calvinists, I'm not saying that God can't determine all things. He could if he wanted to. He absolutely could. He is absolutely sovereign. And I would like to point, um, um, I would like to, point to my definition of God's sovereignty, according to Scripture, is that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, since he is the absolute power, uh, absolute ruler and power over all of creation and existence. And then another thing I'd like to point out from A.W. Tozer, I kind of brought up the full quote this time, um, is that God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not then contradict the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice that man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God has will to give man limited freedom, who is there to stay his hand or say, what are you doing? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. Um, So. I'll kind of just kind of leave it at that because I don't want to carry on too far because this is supposed to be the condensed version.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so number four, it. yeah, number four. I think this is your. If I had to guess, this is your favorite one to talk about. Uh, irresistible grace, the I oh, in in, in good, the tulip good. acronym. Good so here. what is what is irresistible grace? Why is it irresistible? Or I guess in your in your from your opinion, why is it not irresistible? Or why why I just use a double negative. Why why is it resistible? Uh, but how would you define it? And, uh, what's your, what's your take on that?
1: Well, um, so again, it's the logical progression, right? So if you're totally unable to respond to God, well, no, if you're totally depraved and worthy of condemnation, and you're unable to see any revelation from God while you're in the darkness, you're unable to respond to any light given to you. And so therefore God then unconditionally elected people that were in that darkness to be saved. And that would mean that, Uh, the atonement of Jesus Christ is limited to those people that God chose for salvation unconditionally. That would mean that those people who he chose, they would find the choosing of God to be irresistible. They could not refuse it. But God's grace would be irresistible to them. It would absolutely accomplish what what it intends to do. Calvinists teach that God graciously regenerates or born, uh, you know, rebirths brings to life those he elected making them irresistibly desiring to come to christ Uh, faith and repentance are viewed as gifts or fruits of this regenerate regenerating work of god which is irresistibly applied to his elect alone so the rest of the world is pretty much left without hope Um, and another thing i'd like to point out is that this would mean that regeneration or rebirth in the calvinist view is before faith so god has to rebirth you or bring you to life in order for you to believe, which is kind of like the backwards of what Jesus uh, uh, demonstrates in John 3. Um, it, it, it's, 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 it's it's a bit of a, it's, in my opinion, it's just a weird order for, for that to happen because all through scripture, we see that God's grace or God's salvation is applied through faith. And nowhere do I see scripture that faith, is the uh, irresist- or is the gift of God. Um, some Calvinists would point to uh, Ephesians 2, verse 8, if I'm not mistaken, where it says that. Uh, let's actually just, you know, let's pull that up because I don't want to misquote it because the wrath of Calvinists would then come down upon my head. And I really don't want that. Um, For by grace you have been saved through faith and that, not of you- and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast funny enough is i looked up the commentary of john calvin himself on this verse and he agrees that when he says that it is the gift of god he's the apostle paul is not talking about faith he's talking about the, the grace the saving grace that is given through faith so in other words grace is supplied through faith that would mean that faith has to be there first in order for that grace to come through it. Um, Sorry if I'm sounding kind of weird while saying that I just want to be really clear. on. And there was another uh, verse I was trying to find. Uh, Where's that verse? Yes, uh, Colossians 2 verse 12 that says, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. So we were raised with him through faith in the working of God. Um, So God and his working decided to rebirth us, or or, I hate that, uh, bring us to life, if I can put it that way. Rebirth sounds awkward. Um, Bring us to life. He decided to regenerate us through faith. His grace is applied to us through faith. Um, and that.
0: So you say that. So you're, you're saying that faith is not God given? Is that what you were, you, you were saying earlier?
1: Well, <laughs> and this is where I would make a caveat because even faith, I would. This is a funny thing. This is a funny thing. Even though I don't agree that Ephesians 2 8 is speaking, that, is speaking about faith being a gift of God, um, but it's speaking that the grace given through faith is the gift of God. I could still agree um, with Calvinists that faith is a gift. Um, and some people might ask me, well, <laughs> you know, how, 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 could you, how could you say that? How would you agree that um, uh, faith is still a gift? Well, I would point to Romans 10 that says that our faith is enabled by hearing the word. So in other words, what will you have, what, what will you believe in if God didn't first supply the message of the gospel? So if God didn't first send the gospel of Jesus Christ, if God didn't send his revelation to you or his light to you while you were in the darkness, what would you have to believe in? There would be nothing for you to believe in. Faith doesn't, like, it. it, 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 it our faith didn't push God to then save us. No. God's work through Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel pushed us to faith. Um, and our choice is either to resist that or to, or to accept it, um, does that kind of
0: make sense? No, <laughs> it does. It uh, does, because I, because I, I, I guess it's kind of walk. You're walking a tightrope here, um, because yes, it's. You can argue that um, it's it's our faith, um, you know, through our faith, or was it by grace yeah. through faith. Yeah, by grace through faith. Um, that's that's how we, you know, we come into the faith, if I if I can say that. Um, but then. I wouldn't necessarily say that faith is not a gift from God. And from Romans 10, the passage that you were referring to, um, I know some people interpret not only that passage, but other parts of passages. Um, They basically interpret it in a way where faith is kind of packaged in the gift with, with the Mm -hmm. word of God. It's kind of comes as like a a package and that's where people can uh, kind of receive it. But um, I just wanted to, in that context, I wanted to hear your perspective yeah, yeah. on that, uh, because I know that's it's kind of uh-huh. iffy, and it goes back and forth on whether or not, or maybe to what extent is faith a gift from God? Okay,
1: so first I'd like to clarify what we mean by faith. Um, so there, I guess there's two ways that we can use faith, right? So we could say that someone came into the faith, or my faith is the Christian faith. Uh, we use that in the way to, to uh, describe the denomination or the, the belief system that we adhere to, right? Um, and then there's also the definition of faith of saying, like, you must have faith in order to be saved, or you must believe, in other words. You must believe on what is being told to you in order to be saved. I'm talking about that belief. I'm not talking about, you know, our faith in terms of our belief system, yes, is a gift of God to us. Uh, Christianity is a gift to God to us. Jesus Christ is a gift to God to us. Uh, you know, what what, what, um, what? could I have done in the darkness of my sins if God left me completely alone without revealing absolutely anything of him to me? I could have done nothing. I had nothing. But God revealing himself to me, re- revealing the message of the gospel is a gift. Revealing, if I could say, the faith as in the definition of the system of Christianity. Yes, that's a gift. That's an absolute gift to us. God didn't have to reveal himself to us, but yet he did. Now, um, where I disagree that uh, uh, faith is a gift is the way that Ephesians 2.8 is using it. Um, Ephesians 2.8 is using it in the sense that um, the grace of God, so in other words, the grace of God given to us, um, uh, um, the grace that saves us, the grace that is supplied to the, the work of Jesus Christ, is... Um, is is given to us through our faith. That's speaking of an individual belief of the the person. It's speaking of the individual uh, decision made by that person. It's kind of like uh, Hebrews 11, where it says that, uh, verse 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. But he who comes to God must believe that he is. So this is the faith that I'm talking about, the individual faith of the person that he must put in God. And even then, I would agree that that individual faith would not have been, you know, you wouldn't have nothing to believe in if God first didn't send you the message of the gospel, if God first didn't reveal Himself to you, if God, you know, didn't uh, show you that you're a sinner through the law. Um, does that kind of make sense? The the, the clarification between the two.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's. I think it's important to kind of make that differentiation because. Um, it can, it can be kind of, uh, misapplied if we don't, but no, it, it, it does make sense now. Like the, um, I guess it's, it's, it's a matter of more impre- interpretation, and, and, especially with Ephesians yeah, and 2. Here, and here's yeah. another
1: thing though. Here's another thing I'd like for, I'd like for your audience to consider is that, um, even if, even if we were to take, um, even if we were to take Ephesians 2.8, uh, that faith is the gift of God, um, you know, meaning that, you know, the, the way that faith is used there as the individual faith, um, that that's an actual gift of God. What I'd like to point out is, does a gift in the context of irresistible grace, does a gift have to be irresistibly given for the giver to get full credit for like for giving the gift? You know, d- d- does like, because um, uh, um, uh, one, one of the arguments of, of Calvinists many times is that, you know, if, if God doesn't irresistibly gift you this faith, He doesn't get the glory for all of salvation. We already dealt that with, you know, there's absolutely no glory in faith for myself. I I don't deserve any glory for believing. There's, in fact, I believe Romans 5 kind of shows that we are not saved by the works of the law, but by faith, showing that faith isn't like a work that is meritorious. A gift doesn't have to be irresistibly given in order for for us to be, uh, in order for us to have the choice to accept that gift or not um i'm not and and this is the thing i don't see anywhere in scripture or, or or anywhere that would teach that faith um is irresistibly given or that would even teach that grace is irresistibly given um uh to to believers i would i would insist that uh this kind of doctrine is actually more of a logical and philosophical conclusion of the previous points that is read onto scripture. Um, like I pointed out before, like even John Calvin himself disagreed that Ephesians 2.8 could be used in that sense. Um, and the only reason why, or one of the strong reasons why he actually believed in irresistible grace the way that we know it to be uh, taught, is because he's influenced by Augustine and his doctrines who was also influenced by Manichaean Gnostic and Neoplatonic uh philosophies that he was into before he converted to Christianity um what was the sorry I kind of forgot what the original question that you asked me before
0: (laughs) so my original question was uh the different the the differences between the faith but you answered that but I think um I like the way that you put it because we're getting to a point where it's like I mean, the fifth point is, I think it's something a little more unique. I don't think it's, I think it goes beyond the the whole progression of the five points. And um, I do believe that the majority of the weight that Irresistible Grace holds is uh, contingent on the previous mm-hmm. three points, like you said, how the progression goes. Because if you believe in the first three, then the on- the only logical next yeah. step would be Irresistible and- Grace. If not, then it doesn't really support the other if- three. Um, but that, that was basically the clarification, but I, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because that's like, a if, you know, you, you, take one out, you kind of take all, them all out, you know, it, it, it doesn't hold as much weight yeah. just because, um, it's, it's not as, it's not tied to the others. If, or if it I is could actually. read
1: just a few verses to kind of supplement the previous ones I read. Um, so James 4, 6 says, but he give uh, he gives grace, um, well, well, well it starts in verse six by saying but he gives more grace therefore he says god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble and this is a th- thought that's taught out of scripture you humble yourself why are you humbling yourself because the law showed you to be a sinner and that you're in need of a savior and you humble yourself and say yes god please save me i can't do nothing to save myself and god gives you grace because of that faith um another verse is two corinthians five twenty to 21 now then we are ambassadors for christ we, uh, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What is the point of pleading and being an ambassador of God and pleading with you that you would be reconciled with Christ if God could just irresistibly irresistibly grace you and give you faith as a byproduct of that irresistible grace? There's no point of this pleading. Um, Some Calvinists would say, oh yeah, but God irresistibly graced graces people by using means what the, uh, so what the calvinists um are trying to say there is that god uses different methods in order to irresistibly grace people so he'll use other people in order to irresistibly grace you all i want to say is that means nothing those those type of means or those type of methods mean nothing if in the end result it is still god who has to uh, uh um kind of zap if I, I don't want to put it that way, might offend some people, but kind of zap your mind and zap your spirit and regenerate you in order for you to believe. There's no point of pleading and persuading. Uh, There's this one <laughs> in this one uh, on, uh, like kind of a, a chat debate I saw once, somebody asked a, a Calvinist preacher is like, what's the point of preaching? Like why are you, why do you preach if God it is God who unconditionally elects and irresistibly grace? And the Calvinist pastor said it's because God determined me for for, for me to preach. And it's kind of like, okay, well, I mean, <laughs> what's the point of that then? If it is God that irresistibly graced and unconditionally elects, it, it's this, it's this dizzying lifestyle that you have to live. And I don't think that scripture, and I strongly believe that scripture doesn't present that. Um, it, once you're exposed to a different perspective uh, and you read the verses in a different way, you see that, you know, scripture doesn't teach that people are irresistibly graced. I would like to point people to Luke 15, 11 to 32, where it teaches about the prodigal son. Was the prodigal son irresistibly graced to come home to his father? No. But what does the prodigal son first do in order to be accepted by the father? And as the father kind of said to the other son, to be brought back to life. The prodigal son had to first realize, man, I'm eating pig slop while my, like, the servants and my father's are being treated better. What am I doing? You know what? I'm going to go back to my father and be like, look, I'm unworthy, man. I, 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 don't, I don't even deserve to be called your son. Make me please. Make me at least like one of your servants, at least. And he went and did that. But what does the father do? And This is a demonstration of what God uh, does for us. He saw him from a far distance, ran out to his son, embraced him, hugged him, put his ring on him, which pretty much signifies that, yes, you're making him a A, a, a hare of your household again. Read Ephesians 1. It's exactly what's happening there because he has blessed us with these spiritual blessings that we would be uh, uh, adopted as sons of God, that we'd be found blameless. And what did he tell the other son is that I received, I received him as uh, from the dead. He was dead. And now he's alive. What had to happen before he was dead and alive. The son had to realize the son, the prodigal son had to realize that, uh, uh, he was living a life apart from God, a, part, a, part, uh, a life of sin and, 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 and just misery and flop. And he, how did he come back? Oh, Father, because I came back, I deserve glory. No, because there is no glory in that. Like I said, there is no glory for us in faith. It, all the glory is to the Father who ran out from a far distance to embrace his son. What glory does the son get? Nothing. We still look at him like a miserable slop. We're still probably thinking, oh, man, he went with whores and adulterers. I wouldn't do that. He gets no glory. The father gets all the glory. But he wasn't irresistibly graced. The father didn't send out someone to bring him back home. The father didn't eat, you know, kind of like put a magic potion in his pig slop that changed his mind to, you know, come home. It didn't work that way. Um,
0: so to clarify, you said, you said miserable slop, right? S-L-O-P. Sorry? You said S-L-O-P, right. Miserable slot. yeah.
1: What, what,
0: what did it, what did it Okay, good. Because it sounded like something else, but oh, no, I don't want to oh, say it on, on oh, the... <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's all good. People. No, because I know because it's, it's different over the Zoom. Oh, it's, Lord it's, Lord, yeah, Lord. I just wanted to clarify that because then I'll get it like... A, if people make it this far in the episode, I'll get like a text like, what did he say? at uh, Minute 124 or oh, one, Lord, 125 Lord. or whatever. Uh But no, you're good. You, I, I understood what you said, but I was like, through like the Zoom recording, it may have been misinterpreted. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. He okay. was he was hit rock bottom. He was eating with the pigs. He yeah. was, he's probably indulged in every fleshly pleasure imaginable. And he was still at the lowest point of his life. And then that's where he kind of realized, um, uh, you know, that he needed the, that he needed to return to the yeah. father. And uh, we, we know the story with that. Um, but uh, I, I quickly want to get to the last point because I know, yeah. you know, in our, in, in like pregame, pregame conversations, uh, I know perseverance of the saints is not something you really focus on because as we discussed it's a progression of events uh total depravity being the base of the mountain and then perseverance of the saints being like Mm -hmm. the peak where a lot of it kind of stems from the other points so i don't want to talk a little bit too much about that but i do want to talk about a subcategory Mm -hmm. of perseverance of the saints and quickly just to define it Basically, what, what the doctrine of perseverance is, is that the people who, the elect, the people who are graced irresistibly, will eventually persevere till the end and make it into mm-hmm. God's kingdom, uh, regardless of what happens. So basically, they'll make it to the end. It's, it's almost like they're assured that. Um, but there is this subcomponent uh, that I do want to talk about, because uh, I recently got some heat oh. for it. Uh, not heat, but I got some uh, interesting responses on my Instagram and this is the doctrine of eternal security, mm. which is a subcategory of this, right? But it, but as you've mentioned, it's kind of almost a separate sect, like a different, it's a little separate from Calvinism. It's not all uh, Calvinistic. Uh, but I want to, I do want to talk about that. And first, I want to ask what your beliefs are, <laughs> and because uh, personally, for me, and I've said this before, and I, I guess I'll say this until I'm convinced otherwise, but. As believers, I do believe in eternal security. I do believe in the assurance of salvation, and I don't believe one can, quote unquote, lose their salvation. Now, lose—we have to define that word—but that's kind of where I come mm-hmm. from, uh, because for—I mean—and we can we can reflect and reflect on multiple passages of scripture that support that. But I know other people, because of their upbringing, believe otherwise. But how would you, if you were to start off, kind of talking about this, how would you start yeah. things off?
1: Um, by the way, Marcus, are you hearing this kind of like at random intervals, this like loud buzzing sound, like a, kind of like a static?
0: Oh, uh, okay. no, maybe that's just my hearing. I don't well, know. Oh, no, it's maybe. pretty loud. I don't maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah. So it's probably not. Maybe it's coming from my end, but, uh, if it's not coming, t- if I'm not hearing it, then it's a good thing. That means okay. we're, we're, that's we're cool. in good that's
1: shape. Cool. Okay. So you asked me what my perspective is on, uh, eternal security.
0: Eternal. Yeah, oh, Lord, eternal security.
1: Uh, he's, he's trapping me guys. <laughs> this is something that I don't <laughs> like to, to, I I'll be honest. I don't really have a full perspective on it. Um, I, I will say what I will say though. I don't think, I don't believe that anything can take your salvation away from you. That is very clear. Nobody can force the salvation from your hands. Um, Paul is clear in Romans 8, 37, and onwards, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, and what I'd like to point out to people is kind of think about the parable of, of the father that, uh, running up to the prodigal son that I pointed out is, Nobody can change the father's mind at that point. My son is seen as readopted back into my family. He is seen as brought back to life. He is mine. I love him. And nobody can change my conviction about my son. I love him to the death. Um, literally, he he loved him to the death. Um and and nobody can take us or take that away from us. Nobody can cause God to unlove us. Nobody can. Uh, not even ourselves can cause God to unlove us, if I can put it that way. Um, uh, but he loves us. Now, I will also like to say is I don't believe we can lose our salvation. Now, I'd like to kind of really emphasize what I mean by lose is salvation is not something to be lost. It's not something that you kind of like drop out of your pocket, like, you know, it's like you kind of lose your phone because you forgot to pick it back up salvation is not like that you were born again into salvation you can't lose your born again you can't like you know kind of like like i'm, I'm born into this world and i just lose my yeah. life it's,
0: yeah what is what is reborn of the spirit cannot be undone of the in the flesh so that that's like a quote that i've yeah, heard multiple that, uh, times um
1: and and now now um like and what i mean by the by the way that like you can't you can't uh you can't like, hmm, how, 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 how should I put this in such a way where people don't understand what I'm trying to say? How about Ephesians uh, 1, 13 to 14? It says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, and I'd like to point out the Calvinist, having believed, so through faith, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So a few key words I'd like to point out to people is, is once we have believed and we were sealed with the Holy Spirit promise. Now sealed, uh, that's, a pretty, that's, that's, that's the language that a, king, a sovereign king uses when he wants to seal something and nobody else is allowed to touch that. Nobody else is allowed to break that seal. Nobody else is allowed to, to mess with that. And I could even point out, maybe not even ourselves are allowed to touch that, or allowed to to break that seal, because God is still our sovereign king, and that is his seal that we cannot touch. But other areas of scripture says that we are his sons, right? We are his sons, and within being his sons, we have certain privileges um, as being his sons. Now, does that amount to saying that we can break the seal? There's debate on that. But further on in this verse, in these verses, it says, um, so once we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, a guarantee is that it's a done deal. You will be an inheritor. And if you want a bit more context, um, read further on at the start of Ephesians 1, where it talks about how we were adopted into his sons. We were given a bunch of spiritual blessings. Um, um, and when, when is this guarantee until like, how, how long are you guaranteed? Is it as long as, you know, like you're kind of like, you know, until you do a really bad sin. Well, no, it says guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So pretty much it's kind of like, kind of like Jesus presents in the parable. The master is a far away on a trip somewhere, but he left a guarantee. He left a guarantee of a purchase of a possession. And he might've left it in the care of some servants too. Kind of like in that parable, he left the vineyard in the care of the Jews or the, you know, the, the, the servant. And um, even if those servants were really bad, you better bet that that master is going to come back and redeem that possession. He is going to take that possession because he purchased it. It's his. It's guaranteed, sealed by the spirit. And nobody else can take it away from him because it is to the praise of his glory. Now, there's debate on, 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 um, uh, there's debate on whether... Yeah, sure. Nobody can take the salvation away from us. Nobody can mess with that. That is God's. And, and I would also like to point out is I don't believe that you can out sin your salvation. I don't believe you can, you can sin, like sin, like a great deal of sin. And then all of a sudden, boof, like there's a magical number where you just, you know, you're, oh no, you're gone. Bye-bye. That is heretical. In my opinion, that is incredibly heretical um, for anyone to believe that Sin could potentially have a greater power, a greater atoning power, or, or sorry, a greater uh, corrupting power than the atoning power of Jesus Christ's blood. Um, uh, however, Hebrews three does teach an interesting thing about sin um, that some uh, some of the other side would would. I'm not on any side really. I, I'm trying to figure these things out myself. That the other side would also teach, where in Hebrews three twelve. Um, the writer teaches, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So the writer is saying, beware that there be any evil heart of belief in any of you. And how does he uh, commend to us to avoid having this evil heart of belief? What is the process that we avoid this? Well, he says, by exhorting each other daily, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sorry. So what is that hardens us towards this evil heart of unbelief, unbelief? It's sin. So it's not that there's a magic number of sin, the other side would argue, that causes you to lose your salvation, but that sin has such a process and an and effect on your heart and mind, so as to re-corrupt you and to cause you to come to the point of where you're so hardened against God that you would apostatize and you would uh, uh, reject God, you would reject the Father, Son, and the Spirit. You would even commit to the point of the, you know, the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit of God, and you would be condemned forever because you're a person who knew the truth and you rejected Him. Um, now, <laughs> there's a lot of gray area within those two extremes okay um a lot of people would also go to hebrews 6 where it talks about a specific people that you know seems in this or some people would interpret this uh, this passage to have rejected the 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 faith and and the writer of hebrews is saying you know you know it's impossible to renew them again to repentance like you know if they fall away like you can't do that again, since they crucify again for themselves the son of god and put him to an open shame now, in order to explain this passage, I would have to go like verse by verse starting from Hebrews 1, <laughs> So, because the context really matters. A book I would really recommend to people on commentary of Hebrews is actually a Romanian book, don't hate me, people. Um, so it's, it's um, a commentary by a Romanian theologian, Zahari Abika, Epistolă Lui Pavel către Ne'evrei, it's called. Um, he says ne'evrei, or non-Jews, because he believes that you know, even though this, this book is written to the Jews or the Hebrews, it, it, it's applicable to all. Um, so he kind of makes a play on the word there. Um, and he has an interesting interpretation here, not just him, but there's other people that has interesting interpretations here, um, where in a nutshell, he, he believes that what it's saying here is that um, if you read from the start, he's exhorting the Hebrews to not revisit the beginning doctrines of Christianity. Uh, in order to try to renew people in their congregation who have started turning back to Jewish tradition and Jewish law Uh, um, uh, to not keep on focusing on beginning of doctrines, because what what he was saying is that if you keep focusing on these beginning of doctrines because you're so worried about these people that have turned away from the righteousness righteousness of Christ and righteousness of law, in doing this, you're gonna also impede the growth and development of the rest of your congregation that still believes. You can't keep staying at the beginnings of of teachings, because through these beginning teachings, you can't renew these people to repentance. Because in a way, what they're kind of doing right now is they're putting Christ to an open shame again, uh, again. So what these theologians would say is that this passage is not teaching that they can't be renewed to repentance ever. They would have to choose to do so. They would have to decide that they're wrong and repent of it um but that uh but what this passage is saying is that you can't renew them to repentance with these beginning doctrines and beginning teachings and these like you got to stop that because you're impeding the progress of everyone by doing that and they're rebuked multiple times throughout hebrews kind of like how the apostle paul rebukes the corinthians for the immaturity too because the writer of hebrews says that you jews you should already be teachers you should already be people who know it all like man come on like you have the scriptures but you're being impeded because you keep going to the beginning of doctrine to try to renew these people who went back to the righteousness of the law and it just it's not working so there's the two perspectives right you know you have those who you know believe that you and i would agree you can't lose your salvation you know it's not something to be lost you, you don't just misplace it um and it, it, nobody can take your salvation away from you you can't out your salvation but then there's the question of 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 well, can you apostatize, you know, there's the other side that says like, you know, there's a point, some people even go to the point where they say like, if you sin certain sins, like you're never going to be saved again. I heard this terrible story about this one pastor who, this one woman who committed adultery and uh, left the church and created adultery and wanted to live with another man. And then one day she repented and came back and wanted to, she was so repent, re- repentful and tearful and weeping. And the pastor pretty much told her, no, there's no more chance for you. You, you, you rejected Christ, and that is incredible heresy, Wow! incredible heresy, to believe that the atoning work of Jesus Christ is not applied still to Christians when they sin. Oh, man, I would love to preach the sermon that I preached recently on, on, <laughs> uh, on the washing of the feet, uh, of G- what Jesus Christ did when he washed the, the feet of the disciples, and what the symbolic imagery means in theology there. It is so beautiful especially the point where jesus said to peter that uh, what you know you're i don't need to wash your head and your hands you're you're clean those who are clean only need to wash the feet and it's that image of we are clean we're cleansed by the word as jesus teaches us in, in john and other areas we're clean we're born again but yet when we are shod, with, as ephesians 5 teaches we have the, the shot on our feet the 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 the, uh, the uh the zeal of the gospel of peace you know the preparation of the gospel of peace and we're walking throughout this world to spread the gospel of peace you know that verse that says oh how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings um we walk throughout this world and why are we walking throughout the world kind of in the same way how the jews couldn't keep their feet clean in that dusty environment even though everything else was clean because they're so meticulous in their cleaning and their washings as they have in their tradition their feet was always dirty and they always needed to wash it the same way us christians it's almost impossible to be affected by everything that is around us. It, 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 even if we might not sin in our actions, our minds are clouded. Our hearts are clouded. We're burdened and we have to come to Christ. And we have to unload our burdens. We have to say, God, look, this is what's going through my mind. This is what's bothering me. Wash me clean. So even though I don't have a definitive position on this whole eternal security, whatever, like, can you ever apostatize? Like, Can you get to the point where your heart is so hardened again that you reject Christ? And if you do say that, um, are you really not saved? Are you like the Apostle John says in his epistle, you know, they came out of us to show that they're not really of us? I don't know. But one thing I do know and I take hope in is God has sealed us with this Holy Spirit of promise. And this is a guarantee of salvation. I do not doubt I am saved. I know I am saved. Because I know the work that the Spirit has done in my life already. I know the work that He is performing still in my life. By convicting my heart of my sin. And He's a constant presence with me. If I didn't feel convicted of my sin, you know, then maybe I'd be worried. But I do feel Him convict me of my sin. He is with me. And the Word of God promises me that I am saved. And not only that, but it says that who can separate me from this love of God? And if this love of God is so great, then who is to stop me from ever coming to God, no matter how far I might get away from him, even while I am, as a, uh, 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 even while I am a Christian? This doesn't mean that we sin willfully now because, oh, you know, you know God's love is always a good, goes back. That's stupid. Read Romans 6. Paul rebukes his uh, accusers for the same reason where he said, doesn't,
0: uh, yeah, slaves yeah. to righteousness. No longer exactly, slaves to sin, but exactly. slaves to righteousness. Because yeah.
1: Romans 5, right before that, the last verse, he says, where sin abounds, grace is much more. Like, there's, you know, like the grace of God will always be greater than your sin. This doesn't give you a reason to sin. No, because this same grace is what changes you. This same grace is what sanctifies you. This same grace is what is, is, is renewing your mind. Uh, Philippians 1.6 is trusting in this very thing that he who begun his good work in us will perform it into the day of Christ Jesus. It's God's work that he's performing in you now that you believe. And he will, man, he will do everything. Um, I believe everything necessary that he, that he sees as necessary to keep you in the faith. I trust in my God. I trust that on the hour of persecution, on the hour that may, I, I, I may be um, tortured and, 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 and ridiculed and, 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 and uh, pushed to recant, that God would supply me the strength of, according to Scripture. As Paul says in all throughout Scripture, that even though he goes through all these things that, you know, it is not him, but he can do all things in Christ who strengthens him. It, he wasn't just making... A statement of, oh, look how great I am. I can play football now because I believe this verse. No, he was making a statement that through all the, read the context, through all the pain that he lists there, Christ strengthened him. Christ strengthened him. Now, I'd like to point out to Calvinists: I don't believe this is an irresistible strengthening. You know, Paul could still have chosen to refuse or recant or whatever, but Christ provided all necessary for him to not recant. Provided all, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's spiritual. I don't know what type of strength he provided. Maybe it's all of them, but God will provide, and that is my—that is if 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 I, if I could state, um, if I can kind of like you know, repeat, Leighton, Dr. Layton Flowers' uh, kind of label that he made up. I do believe in the provision of Jesus Christ. I am a provisionist. That's if I if I align with an ism um it's not calvinism it's not arminianism it's provisionism what i mean by that is that god has provided all necessary everything necessary for man to be saved and for man to continue in his salvation god has provided everything for you to be saved and he gets all the glory for that
0: yeah and i'm glad you kind of explained both extremes of of this point of eternal security and and and, and with eternal security and everything we talked about these last two episodes, I, these are things that, yes, it's important to understand and, and it's an mm-hmm. important to, to, to kind of comprehend as we're explaining the gospel to people, but this shouldn't be our, 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 our main focus. There are other things that we need to prioritize. And that's obviously the commission and in, in, in the gospel and, and, and just going and preaching the name of mm-hmm. Jesus to the ends of the earth. Um, but, you know, understanding eternal security, like I said, instead of focusing on either extreme, it's better just to focus on on what what really matters. And because you can, you, there there are dangers on, on oh, both sides, oh, yeah. right? You have one extreme. You were talking about that that a, a, the adulterous woman who was mm-hmm. repentful and was rejected from her church. That's one extreme. And then you have the opposite side of the spectrum: the license to sin, the the false assurance mm-hmm. of salvation. Actually, Adrian Rogers, who agrees who or agreed, he's 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 passed away mm-hmm, since, mm-hmm. but um. Uh, uh, one of my favorite preachers, he said the only thing, uh, oh, the the only thing worse than not having the assurance of salvation is having the false assurance of salvation. And he, and he wanted to basically make that point like, hey, we as Christians, like you said, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We need to have, we need to understand that we are like ready to go. This is it. Not to get distracted. But at the same time, don't, don't like jump to the other extreme. And he kind of made the point point of that. But, Uh, I'm glad that we kind of got to discuss that. Um, Tim, as we're wrapping this episode up, I know there was a lot of things that we talked (laughs) about, but if there's like one final statement you want to make to the listeners out there, maybe like an an over, I don't know, like a generalization or whatever you want to say, if there's one statement you want to make, what would you tell the the audience out there? Uh, I know it's hard to just pick one thing.
1: (laughs) I, I, I would honestly like to encourage the audience um with even that very those very verses that i read from romans 8 um where it said that yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this love of God, it is not only extended or offered to the unconditionally elect. It is not only offered to, you know, the irresistibly graced, you don't have to fear and be in doubt of your salvation because you don't know if in the future um, you will be one of those people that, like the Apostle John says, that they came out of us to 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 prove that they're not they were not of of us. You don't have to fear that you were perhaps not unconditionally elected or irresistibly graced by God, but you're just living a, a lie, kind of like the lead singer of Cademan's Call, an old man way back when I think his name was Derek Webb. He was a calvinist and a lot of his songs were very calvinist leaning and completely apostatized and in in an interview that he had with a theologian he said you know if god wants to grace me if he wants to unconditional elect me he can he can just um you know call me like jesus called lazarus from the tomb he can just irresistibly grace me i'm waiting i'm open i want that um if, if, if that's true if it's true you know because who who would want who who wouldn't want that not, God's love is not limited. But that love that the Apostle Paul spoke of in Romans 8, saying that nothing can separate us from that love, it is extended to everyone, just as Jesus Christ himself said, that for as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man may be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then I could echo that with what Paul said to Timothy, where he said that uh, God desires all men to be saved, and he desires no one to perish. But you have to accept that love of God. You would be stupid and a fool to not accept that love of God. And I'm not, I'm not trying to um I'm not bashing on any atheists or anything. I'm saying like if you understood the call of God, and if you understood it and there was no uh you know impediment. It would be foolish of you to reject the love of God. And not only that, but be assured that this love of God, if you are a Christian, is effective. This grace of God is effective in keeping you and strengthening you until the end. But kind of like how you, Marcus, warned us is God provided us all means necessary for us to be strengthened. And many of those means have to do with our actions, such as prayer reading the word, remaining in the word, remaining in Christ, remaining in him. Um, And I would encourage your audience, seek the Lord, you know, draw near to him. Um, Kind of like how James says, you know, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Uh, God knows your struggles. He knows your pain. Does he not know us, like the psalmist says, as a father, does he not know what we're made of? And not only that, but he loves you to the point where, like the, 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 the father of the prodigal son, where he saw you from afar off. You were not even close to him, but he saw you from afar off. He saw you making those initial steps to him, and he ran out to meet you. He sends out his gospel to you. He sends out his appeal to you, because why? He loves you. He loves you. He loves you deeply and greatly. Um, and many people struggle with the problem of pain in this world, the problem of evil and stuff like that. And I would leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis that says, Um, in his book, The Problem of Pain, we can ignore even pleasure because we can ignore everything in life. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And all the pain that you see in this world, you know, it accomplishes a purpose of drawing people to realize that this pain is a consequence of their separation from God. And God is revealing himself through this pain. He's revealing himself through all of nature and his invisible attributes. And anyone like the prodigal son who takes those initial steps to him, he will run out to meet you. This is what scripture promises because his grace comes through faith. His grace is extended to all. It is not limited. Do not fear. Um, and I'll leave that at that. I'm sorry. That was a bit more of a statement. That was a, yeah, sorry.
0: <laughs> no worries. Thank you so much, Tim. And uh, thank you for, for coming on and uh, I know this was—I know for you listeners out there, this wasn't just, like, a standard explanation of the components of Calvinism. Obviously, there was some bias on on both of our parts, and I feel like having the bias there makes it more interesting— um I'm sure there are a ton of YouTube videos that you can listen mm-hmm. to or articles you can read that describe the different art you know the different components of Calvinism uh of, of the of the TULIP acronym and uh it, it might be a little bit dry but here at least you can kind of hear from you know from our perspectives uh we have a similar upbringing in the Romanian Pentecostal church and um to be honest I I, I after after listening uh to you here Tim uh I think we agree on more than I thought we would um, I'm, just because at the end of the day, and this is what I've heard a lot of, uh, pastors, preachers say, um, when it comes to these t- two different schools of thought, a lot of it is just interpretation mm-hmm. and, and, and the interpretation or the, the, the differences of interpretation isn't salvific and it's, you're looking at the same thing, but in different ways. So, um, it's, we can all coexist together. You know, I, I'm like I said in, in the very first episode uh, of this like two part series, um, I'm somewhere in the middle. I kind of I agree with some components of Calvinism, but then I disagree with other parts, and I think that's a very like I guess safe space to be. But I think it's all a spectrum, and I think we all can agree that there are much more important things uh, than to focus on on these small differences. There there are much more important missions to accomplish mm-hmm. that Jesus sent out for us to do. Uh, while we're still here, uh, in our limited time, you know, there's no limited atonement. There's limited time. How about that? Here, here on this earth, to 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 do the Father's will. So, uh, I'll leave that with that. Uh, Tim, thank you so much, man, for being uh, here again. I really appreciate it. And uh, I mean, on behalf of all of the listeners, we appreciate all the work and effort you put. Just not only studying this, but kind of putting. Your research together and and coming on, I think it's it's very beneficial for all those who listen. So thank you, man. I really appreciate uh, no it, bro. No
1: man. I hope it's a benefit to everyone and all for the glory
0: of God. Amen. And um, if you if there's if something arises and you you're listening to this episode and maybe you disagree with something or you agree with something and you want to you have a question or whatever, uh, please direct that to me. Uh, either the email, you know, the Potter's House at gmail.com or through the Instagram DMS or whatever. Uh, and then if it, if it's anything worth sending, I can, I can ask for Tim's input, uh, just that way. So we don't get, you don't get like a flood of messages, uh, you know, unsolicited messages, uh coming your way uh from god knows who. So, uh, if you have any questions or if you have any concerns, please reach out to me directly and then I will be that mediator between uh you guys and, and Tim for that regard. So, thank you Tim for being on. Thank you listeners for staying tuned so long and and listening and um I'm just going to be quick with these announcements. You guys know Instagram at the Potter's House. The website, thepottershouse.com, Spotify, iTunes. That's where we're at. Share all these episodes. Share it with someone that you would think could benefit from it. And then leave a review because it really helps with the exposure of the show. But thank you guys so much. Looking forward to next week. And uh, we will see you next time.